Hello, you're listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast, a brand new series recorded entirely in lockdown. This series is part of the East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, aka Elise, powered by UCL. Elise is an accessible, specially designed community for entrepreneurs who are disabled or whose work focuses on accessibility. This series is packed full of change makers, innovators, and partners all of them connected to Elise. Built on the Paralympic legacy, we're working with several partners, including Disability Rights UK, Plexor, and the Global Disability Innovation Hub to pioneer the development of products and services in and around the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. Each episode, you'll hear from our host, Matt Pieri. Matt founded Sociability, an app which helps disabled people find accessible spaces such as cafes and bars. This app is now available to download. Hi everybody and welcome to episode 5 of the Inclusive Innovators podcast. Today is International Day of Persons with Disabilities and who better to chat with than CEO of Disability Rights UK, Cameron Malik. Cameron has been working tirelessly in the field of disability rights and inclusion for years and today leads some really important work on equal rights, access and opportunities for disabled people all around the country. Let us know how you're celebrating International Day of Persons with Disabilities on Twitter at Elise2020 with the hashtag Inclusive Innovators. I'd love if you were just able to give us a brief introduction to who you are and what you do. I'm absolutely really good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So my name is Cameron, uh, Cameron Malik. I'm Chief Executive of Disability Rights UK. Disability Rights UK is a, a kind of pan-disability, disabled people-led organisation. And we're a membership organisation, so we have individual disabled people who are members of our organisation, as well as organisations um, of, of disabled people, but also kind of what we call our allies and our friends. So organisations that are not necessarily about disability, but our allies and friends. And um, I get my, a little bit about me. So I'm a wheelchair user. My background is I've been in the, in the space of working in nonprofits for pretty much all my career, 20 odd years, 25 years now going on. Um, so I've been in, in this world for a long time. And can you give us a, just a little taste of some of the other organizations that you've worked uh, for or, and or with sure. in, in those 25 years? Prior to Disability Rights UK, the longest stint I've spent in one place was working for a local grassroots disabled people-led organisation called Action on Disability, uh, which is a London-based organisation, you know, a local organisation working for the rights of disabled people, delivering key services locally, things like advocacy services, direct payment support services, employment services. Um, and I guess one of the biggest things we were doing there was youth service. and. Um, so I was there for oh, 13 years. I went there for three years, stayed for 13, because I loved the work, because um, you were working on the, on the ground. Prior to that, I worked for a spinal injuries charity called Aspire, so the national organization. I was there as the head of training and IT. And that's really, I've always had an interest in IT, kind of been a bit of a fan of gadgets and tech from a very young age. But mm-hmm. while I was at Aspire, I, uh, we were running something called the assistive technology assessment uh, program which was working with people with spinal cord injury and looking at what assistive technology and how technology could be interfaced with the new way they were going to engage with everyday life from that point after their injury and so that the kind of that's where i 
really saw the world of tech and uh, everyday lives of disabled people coming together and how the two kind of really connect on a really fundamental level. Prior to that, uh, so I was there for about seven years. Um, so I've stayed in my job for quite a long time. I'm not one who jumps around too much. <laughs> Uh, before that, I was I was teaching IT. I was teaching web design and uh, office skills and things at an adult education centre. I worked for a very small uh, charity as well prior to that, which was a disability charity as well. And I guess my very first job, uh, kind of proper job as it were, uh, was working for a local authority. And uh, I stayed there really for five years and uh, uh, did my degree in business while I was while I was working as well also i want to explore a bit more what you're currently doing at disability rights uk and, and what you know some of the key projects that you guys are focusing on and some of the areas that you think need you know time and, and investment in but um just briefly i guess on a kind of more personal point um what is it like working you know i guess just taking a step back like you have a disability you use a wheelchair um so what's it like working in the disability space as a disabled person the, the pros and cons, because I imagine there's both. First thing is around kind of collaborative um, working with other like-minded disabled individuals, disabled people, uh, working with other organisations who've got often very similar aims and objectives or are trying to create a world that aligns with the world that I would like to see and Disability Rights UK would like to see. Um, so I think that there's a real kind of... Uh, a community experience there of, of meeting other disabled people who are at different stages of their life, of their career, um, bring their own talent and experience and knowledge um, and kind of bringing all that together. Um, it's, it's, it's hard work. I would certainly say it's not easy work. It um, uh, can be really challenging because you're really trying to change the narrative about how everybody sees disabled people um, so you're trying to change the narrative about that at the same time you're working hard to bring about changes now that will directly impact on everyday disabled people um, so that they can see a, a change in their um, their lives really so that they feel more included they have access to goods and services they have access you know that they are in control of the choices that they want to make um, and set their own destination. Um, so it, it can be incredibly rewarding. It can also be very challenging and hard um, to kind of be knocked back, um, to feel that, um, you know, it sometimes can feel that you've got a lot of people against what you're trying to achieve. Um, so mix, mixed really. When you say you've got a lot of people against what you're trying to achieve, what do you mean by that? Or in what way? So I guess, not, I guess they're not overtly against it. It's it's that idea of that perception of disability that exists in 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 the UK and in the country, but probably globally about disabled people not being equal, um, that we're not uh, the same as non-disabled people, that we should that we don't have the same things to bring to the table, as it were. Um, having to constantly prove that you are and you can um, and trying to get people to be thinking more inclusively so that when they're, whether it's government design, designing legislation and policy or businesses, 
producing goods and services that um, if they were just thinking in a more inclusive way and they brought disabled people into their thinking, you just get a better society, you get a better product, better service. Um, and the, I guess that's, that's where the pushback often is. Thanks. And I think that point about like, you know, designing for disabled people resulting in a better product is really like a forgotten narrative or hidden narrative that that sort of does need to be emphasized a bit more. I mean, this idea that making accommodations for disabled people never negatively impacts non-disabled people. If anything, it only makes it easier, you know, whether it's as simple as having a ramp that then people can push trolleys up or prams or things like that. Um, you know, this kind of curb cut effect, which people just doesn't, it doesn't really factor into how we talk about disability. I think it's definitely something that, that needs to change. Um, and just kind of final point of that, like as a disabled person, obviously a lot of the stuff that you're, you're thinking about dealing with is very close to home and presumably affects you or impacts you in some way, given, you know, just the policies or the kind of the, the um, issues that you're working on. Um, do you find it like very, like, you know, what's it like working on issues that are so close to home and do you find it overwhelming at all? You can find yourself, I, th I think, yeah, so there are issues, of course, that um, connect with you on a bit of an emotional level because you've, you're actually, you've experienced that. I think it's really important to remain objective um, and also remember that as a wheelchair user, I have a very particular view and experience. And therefore, it's really important for me in my role in our organisation that we listen to a diverse range of people's opinions and views and experiences. And we use that to then help us drive the narratives that we that we talk about, um, but I, I think that those those lived and personal experiences can make your arguments very compelling, very strong. Um, and I think that that's kind of how I certainly use my own personal experience and experiences uh, of of kind of discrimination or exclusion um, to make that argument really strong. And what would you say to people who, I guess, say, you know, you are, you are, you aren't objective or you're biased because you do have lived experience, right? Or also like, you know, potentially they want to impugn your motives because you're doing something because it benefits you. I think it's really important that I, I emphasize that Disability Rights UK is a membership organization. So we've got thousands of disabled people, mm -hmm. tens of thousands who follow us, who are members. We've got organizations that then represent tens of thousands of disabled people. And what we do is we listen to that broad voice of, of, of disabled people's experiences and that's what drives us. So it's not about this is what Cameron wants or this is what Cameron's experience is and therefore this is what we should do. It's about what disabled people are telling us is their experience. What the benefit of me being in the role and our organisation have a diverse range of people is that we can often relate to that mm -hmm. and that we can say, yeah, I've experienced something similar. Um, and I think that makes the, the the conversation I have more powerful because not only am I talking about the thousands of disabled people's experiences that we're bringing, but how then ours um, connects with that as well on a personal level. You know, if, if you're blind or if you've got, if you're on the autistic spectrum or whatever your health condition may be, your experience is very unique and it's kind of bringing all of those voices in. Yeah, no, I think that's a really helpful perspective because I know I know there is this narrative that, you know, like um, for good and bad that, you know, people 
there's a lot of people who are who are working on behalf of or in the interest of people um, of other groups, right? And so there's a lot of advocacy work. There's a lot of nonprofit work where people who are heading those organisations or doing the actual work, you know, refugee work is a good example. A lot of people work in that space aren't refugees or haven't been refugees, but they want to go and assist those roles. And I think in a similar space, in a similar sense, you see a lot of people in the disability space who aren't disabled, who go into spaces and then try to, to, you know, with the best of intentions, help empower disabled people. Um, and for lots of people, that's a really positive thing because they're, you know, there for altruistic reasons, etc. And for lots of people, that's a really problematic thing because it's this kind of sense of, you know, this saviour complex or people who don't understand the issues working in a space that, you know, their the understanding of the lived experience is super important because particularly around disability, and we'll talk about it in a sec, but like cultural perception and the ways in which exclusion operates aren't as simple as, you know, um, policies or funding or things like that. It is the way in which people interact in their relationships and, and a lot of those things are much more insidious. So um, I think it is helpful for people, disabled people particularly, to, to understand the importance of their lived experience in going and changing those things and not to feel like they, you know, might be criticised for being biased or, or self-interested or things like that, um, which definitely are some narratives that do appear. Um, but that's a good segue into what Disability Rights UK itself does. So could you just give us a bit more... Um, I guess, colour on two things. One, what separates Disability Rights UK from other organisations in the disability sector? Um, and then a bit more insight into what sort of issues that you work on on a day-to-day basis. Sure. So Disability Rights UK, so we're a national organisation. We, I guess what you call is a, a bit of a second tier type organisation. So we're not, we tend not to deliver much kind of on the grounds being a national organisation. We're relatively small, so we're not a big organization in terms of numbers we've got around 22 23 staff and that fluctuates a little bit but our, our, our real fundamental central part of our organization is around our policy work and, and that policy work is about influencing long-term uh, change in our country and that policy can be about government legislation or government policy and guidance it could be you know fundamentally about affecting change there but it can also be about um, changing perceptions through our policy work and our campaigns work of the wider uh, non-disabled community, but also influencing other sectors like business. So using our policy work to uh, change um, legislation, policy, guidance, but also the narrative around disability. And we do that, so the policy team sits if you like centrally in the organization and feeding into that is the voice of thousands and thousands of disabled people and we do that through our membership that i've already mentioned both individuals and organizations but then we do we run a number of helplines so these these are telephone helplines that disabled people can access so we've got a student helpline that disabled students can contact um, and really to discuss any uh, whatever their experience might be whether it be about uh, money and finance or it could be about accommodation or it could be about a challenge that they've got with their uh, educational establishment whether it's a college or university that they want some support advice and guidance on and what that does is two things it it supports that individual but it also informs us about what's going on out there for disabled students so again that feeds into our policy work then uh, we have a helpline that is for uh, organizations delivering welfare benefits advice and this is around 
making sure that disabled people have um, the finances to live their life and the social security system the benefit system is very complex and so we advise other advisors that are uh, supporting disabled people up and down the country so again that tells us about numbers but also tells us about some of the issues with the system um, and then we have an independent living helpline so that's targeted at disabled people that may have a support package from their local authority to live to for, for their everyday life may employ their own PAs uh, support team or may employ it through a, an agency and again it's about giving that in person information about their rights what the law says what they're entitled to and again it's about us hearing from disabled people who are um, using support packages uh, from their local authority uh, got questions around independent living and that informs our policy team so we've got other ways of doing that we deliver projects um, as well so we've got a program called get yourself active which is really about uh, it started really about looking at why is it that disabled people um, as, as disabled people we generally lead very inactive lives which then has additional complications for our health later on in life and despite what people might think you know since the olympics and paralympics in the uk the numbers of disabled people being active hasn't gone up so we do projects like that to see what are the what are the barriers and how do we overcome them um, and we will often work with disabled people's organizations to deliver them so a combination of things really um, direct services like the helplines how um, we do research um, and all of that feeds into our into our policy that's great and i'm sure there's hopefully lots of disabled people listening here who've find a lot of resonance with some of those things and, and can get involved. So Cameron, could we just then drill down a little bit into some of the work that DRUK is doing around innovation and tech? You mentioned before, obviously, that you've got an interest in this space personally, but um, could we just chat a little bit further about some of the initiatives that are taking place in that space? And I guess more specifically in the kind of East London Inclusive Enterprise Zone, the Here East campus um, and, and with Plexel, because I know that DRUK is doing some work uh, particularly geared towards innovation and inclusion um, uh, at a few different levels. We'd just love to hear your thoughts on, on what those are. Yeah. So back in uh, 2017, we decided to move. Uh, so in January 2018, we moved into Plexel, which is a tech hub in the Olympic Park. We That was a conscious choice. We felt that technology has and will continue to have a greater role to play in all of our lives, whether you're a disabled person or not. And by basing ourselves in an ecosystem like that a hub where innovation is taking place we've got young startup companies and then as well as more established companies looking at tech innovations that if we could be there we wanted to inf influence that thinking that innovation um, that thirst for the kind of the next big change in tech we wanted to be within that system really to make sure that the experiences of us as disabled people could be at the start of some of that innovation and that thinking. So that we, we moved ourselves there in 2018 and kind of immersed ourselves with the organization Plexel and all the other smaller startups and companies that are there. And I guess it's about 18 months ago, working with University College London, uh, Plexor, Global Disability Innovation Hub, and a number of other partners uh, who have 
decided to make the Olympic Park their home for their business or organization, started thinking about, you know, how, how can we really make a step change so that disabled people start coming into that space and thinking about um, the whole idea of being an innovator uh, on different levels, both as disabled people thinking about innovation and um, maybe they've already done something, their own kind of hack that they've done to overcome a barrier. How do you take that to the marketplace? Uh, to influencing other innovators who are, the, who are there and thinking about making their thinking inclusive, bringing that diversity of thinking into the organization. So that, that kind of is where this idea of this innovation enterprise zone kicked off really. Just to quickly pause on that camera, we ask every uh, guest what their innovation inspiration is. So um, just on that kind of specific point there, is, was there something that prompted that or what specifically kind of led you, you know, there's a lot of stuff that disability policy um, work could lead you to. What specifically prompted your focus on this idea of, you know, innovation and inclusion in that space specifically? So I mentioned earlier when I was talking about my kind of where I've been career-wise, <clears throat> when I was working for Aspire, Spinal Injuries Charity, and doing assistive technology assessments, I realised that a lot of the tech that we were having to use was incredibly expensive. Mm. It was quite bespoke. It was often way out of the reach of most of the individuals who we were working with. And a lot of the mainstream technology just wasn't up to, to the job it didn't overcome the barriers that those individuals were now facing. So everything from speech recognition to um, eye trackers to um, uh, different types of keyboards or a, a big wide range of uh, issues. And I always had it in the back of mind since then, really, how do, how do we tackle this issue of cost of it being so expensive? And then what you, what you found over the last kind of 10, 15 years, if you take the smartphone, things like the touch screen and the voice activation that's built into these devices, it's, it's kind of become normalized. We all use it, but actually both those innovations were designed for and by disabled people because that was a way of interfacing with that bit of tech. But now we all take it for granted. And so we don't talk about it as assistive tech. It's just technology. And it's really those things that were driving me to think, how do, how do we do that? How do we tackle this issue of this very exclusive tech for disabled people that most of us can't afford? And then mainstream technology that all of us are now uh, engaged with and using. How do we start to bring some of that together? And I think it was that and the opportunity that Plexor offered us uh, by being based there so that we could start working with companies when they were just thinking of an idea or they were working on a new product, could we start talking to them to say, brilliant product, but how do we make it accessible? Um, and it's a kind of a win-win really, because for the company and the product, it's a bigger market, there's an untapped market there. And the bigger the market, you know, the economics and things show that the more you produce of something, the lower you can reduce its cost. And therefore, if you bake inclusion into it, uh, becomes more accessible for everybody so that's where it kind of came from really yeah awesome i think that's a really great point both about like the need to lower cost and make you know this tech assistive tech more accessible to people at a financial space but then i think secondly that point around like 
broadening the conception of what innovation is and particularly around technology and that actually a lot of the time a lot of the tools well one i think the tools that people use every day weren't weren't actually designed for the purposes that they are used now those are kind of things that have sprung out because because they have super broad applications but then secondly that you know designing for disabled people which often means designing for much stricter constraints actually means you get a product that is much more you know uh, versatile because you've, you've you've it's got an ability to expand to people who have you know essentially don't have disabilities and therefore probably have more physical capacities um, but also works for disabled people which I think is a really fundamental um, reversal of how we think about design rather than sort of adding on the accessibility stuff after the fact which then often is too ad hoc or too narrow focused or um, not like you said not affordable or wide, uh, widely applicable um, so that's great so sorry I cut you off before but yeah do you mind just like diving into a little bit of some of the initiatives that you uh, DRUK is working on with Plexel and with the Elise um, team uh, around accessibility um, in the inclusion space? Sure. So what, what we've been doing initially is kind of phase one of launching the um, Elise space, in, uh, innovation and enterprise space, is making the venue itself more accessible, starting to bring down additional barriers that we experience, that we know exists for disabled people just in the physical space. And we did that by getting together a, a really fantastic and diverse panel of disabled people who were experts both in their fields, not necessarily technology, but just in terms of accessibility, inclusion, bringing a wide range of perspectives in. That culminated in us producing a report that those individuals uh, directly fed into. And that what, what we're seeing now over the next coming months um, when people come to the center, uh, come to the venue, is they will start to see some of those changes happening. So it's everything from things that maybe we often forget. So, we, you know, office spaces are often quite open plan these days and modern design is often very highly reflective surfaces, lots of glass, lots of kind of sh shiny surfaces. But we forget that for, for many disabled people, that's a barrier in terms of noise, um, uh, reflective noise and not being able to find quiet spaces. And so some of it is, is what might seem quite you know, low tech really in terms of just designing a space that's just quiet. <laughs> um, but actually that can mean that someone with a particular impairment can be in that space and be creative and innovative and engage. Um, uh, so some of it is, structural like that um, we are you know changing things that most people would think would already be there but you know making kitchens and bathrooms and tea points more accessible so everybody can just use them and be independent want we from disability rights uk we want plexor to be a place where you can come be completely independent um, and you and be there for the purposes that you're there, i.e., to engage with other innovators, um, to have interesting, rich conversations, collaborate, um, and not worry about the barriers that you traditionally face outside. Um, so, actually, removing the idea that you're a disabled person, you have the barriers that you experience. So, we've done some of that. Coupled with that is, of course, around changing. Uh, people's perceptions and so making non-disabled people the people who work within the environment um, more 
uh, kind of inclusively confident, disability confident. Um, and then working with the university, the UCL, um, to make sure that we support the process of reaching out to as many disabled people. So I'm really interested in not just disabled people who are already at kind of on that track of tech and innovation. They're incredibly important people. But I also want to reach out to disabled people who don't think of themselves as having the label of being an innovator, but they've probably done something in their own life with their own hack um, where actually if you if they if you could bring that thinking and that design thinking into an ecosystem like Plexel and Elise, um, it could develop into something really quite amazing. So we want to kind of tackle yeah. a number of people. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, that all sounds great. I think particularly that last point around just like the less formal, the informal sort of innovation that disabled people do or innovating that disabled people do on a daily basis is both, again, like a fundamentally important part of the narrative around disability that's often forgotten. Disabled people, if you, you know, poll the public aren't thought of as innovators or as creative, they're, you know, they're kind of, there's the sort of outdated versions of, pity and sympathy and you know and pain and uh, kind of objects of charity that sort of tend to dominate a lot of these surveys but this is this is so true of, of like every day just have people by virtue of a lack of accessibility <laughs> are having to problem solve at, you know for literally everything and i think that idea of encouraging that like mindset is a really important one not necessarily like you don't need to have a product or like a, a thing to hand that you could turn into something or or use as the basis of a you know startup or an organization but just that idea that your mindset around the world i think is much more open-minded much more flexible and much more creative is a really important thing to try and nurture um so that's great to hear that and i think particularly also your point around like you know changing basic things like kitchens and bathrooms and you know just like things that allow people to then go into that space and be comfortable um that point about like it not being done but people thinking that it's done or you know we'll just presume it is is this already is a really important one because like obviously the here east center that the the plexal site is in was built for the olympics so it's not old um more to the point it was built with the olympics and the paralympics in mind um and it is kind of frustrating i imagine that in 2020 it has to be retrofitted to become accessible for the center that presumably should have had accessibility pretty front and center in terms of its priorities and and you know it's not it's not a heritage building from the 1300s that that couldn't have been adapted so i think that broader thinking around like actually how do we embed accessibility from the start into things even when we think that they are being done or should be done but actually being quite vigilant about that is really important um, for disabled and non-disabled people alike yeah yeah no absolutely and actually your point about the olympic park absolutely you you just you do think when you go there that it should be very very accessible and i think in many ways compared to other parts of the country or certainly of london it is incredibly accessible but we also have to remember it's a it's a site that's being constantly developed and changed as it becomes um you know it leaves kind of that delivery legacy behind and then moves on to being whatever it is now and what you find is that changes happen that meet certain standards or criteria, but those criteria often are the bare minimum. Yeah, and that's where that's where bringing in that different perspective of people's experience of buildings of environments is really important, so that you can. I mean, ideally, absolutely, 
the day here East was being retrofitted to now be office spaces. It should have had that kind of diversity of thinking and you know, at that level rather than just people who knew what the requirements were legally uh, and going way beyond that. That's a really important point around like accessibility is not being compliant. It's not being the bare minimum. It's not being, you know, essentially not, a, you know, not illegal um, but it's about really functional as you mentioned like allowing people to go into a space to then do something to do whatever it is that they want to do but it, you know whether or not that has met the the regulation is sort of irrelevant um, because the regulation it often isn't geared with that in mind um, I think is a really important one yeah um, if, but if we have time I can illustrate that by my personal experience if we've got time which is when I my first job was working for a local authority and every time I wanted to go to the use the bathroom and toilet facilities, I used to have to go and line up at their public reception desk and get a key that they'd lock the toilet with. And it meant that I was always away for much longer than everybody else. Um, I had to literally queue and ask for a toilet key. That, that really disabled me and it really made me feel that I wasn't the same as everybody else. And often you try and avoid the whole thing. So you wouldn't drink as, as much. You wouldn't have cups of tea and all that. Then when I moved to uh, working for um, the Aspire charity, they, their centre, the Aspire National Training Centre, was built from day one to be inclusive, barrier-free as possible, because it had that inclusive design thinking in at the start. When I arrived there, they had unisex uh, individual toilet cubicles, um, none of them were locked. They're all unisex, and I never had to tell anyone that I was going to the toilet. Yeah. Um, I could go. I didn't have to line up for a key. Um, there was, you know, it wasn't a male, female, and then disabled people. It was just a toilet. And I know maybe most people just think, well, you know, is that really a big deal? But it really was. Mm. It, I suddenly felt not disabled in that environment. Yeah. Because I could just go about my everyday business. So it's 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 that. Is the difference that the environment can make. Yeah, for sure. I think there's two really, like that's a great example that shows two really important points. One is just the kind of microaggressions that disabled people experience every day, right? So every time you need to go to the toilet, it's a pain, it's a hassle, you have to ask someone for a key. That's not a indignity that we ask anybody else to have to do, to ask to go to the toilet, to, to be let in to the toilet when they need to. Um, but the second point is then, you know, this idea around what actually accessible design looks like and the building you're in at the start had a disabled toilet, disabled access toilet. So presumably you ticked the box, but functionally it wasn't super, super useful because, you know, <laughs> there's all these steps and barriers in, in the middle, which make it impractical, even if, you know, theoretically possible. And I think that's a, just, again, that similar point of the lived experience is really important here because somebody designing the building has ticked the box and there's a disabled access toilet, but it doesn't work like a toilet the way which, you know, every other bathroom presumably has been designed to. Um, and that is othering and isolating. Um, so yes, thanks, thanks for those examples. That's really helpful, Cameron. Um, to then jump in, I guess, to the specific issue of innovation in the disability space, we've spoken about some of the things that have arisen in terms of like barriers and perceptions and why people might not go into the space. But what is the kind of one or two sort of top uh, challenges you think that exist in this space that, you know, people need to start thinking about in order to encourage greater innovation in the disability space, but also to encourage greater innovation from disabled people? I think... I think uh... There's something about, um, I guess, kind of perception change that 
the disabled community, disabled people have something really valuable and important to contribute to our society and actually by embracing that challenge from disabled people and working together, we will just create a better society, better products, better services. Uh, I think that's, that's there's, a, there's a whole piece of work to be done around changing the narrative around disabled people, mm-hmm. that um, disabled people are not a group of, are not members of us, our society who are helpless and who need non-disabled people to do things for us and kind of provide us with the solutions to live our lives, that actually we have lots of the answers. Um, there's a whole kind of perception change that needs to happen. And I, I hope that by the work that we're being, going to be doing with Ian Elise, that that will start to spread um, just from the examples that will come out of that. I think there's something around encouraging disabled people when they're in education to be thinking about um, innovation, technology, design, uh, and really, really pr- supporting those individuals through that phase so that when they come out, whether it be college or university, that's, that they're kind of really well-informed and they've had time to really think about what this means, um, that they're thinking more broadly uh, and that they, they start to contribute, really. I think a lot of people's experiences at that stage can often be quite negative, quite poor, and therefore disabled people don't think of themselves as uh, able to contribute to being an innovator or uh, contribute to that kind of thinking. So I think there's a number of points and having UCL involved with the program is really crucial and important as them kind of helping to change some of that experience for their students um, as well as others. Um, Yeah. No, that's great. The last part of our conversation, Cameron, I, I kind of want to like look forward a little bit. So we call, you know, this section like the, our innovation imagination. Um, so I'd love your thoughts on where you see this space, the disability innovation space or inclusive innovation space more broadly. Uh, where do you see it in 10 years time or where do you hope to see it in 10 years time? What I'd like to think is that in 10 years time, two things have happened. One is that if you ask anyone, to name some innovators or people who've done something significantly in this space, that they will be able to name some of those individuals who are disabled people, that they will be known for what they've achieved and created rather than being known because they are disabled. Uh, So one about that. And the other one is that I would hope that in that timeframe, within the ecosystem of Elise, uh, that innovation and inclusive educate inclusive innovation is just happening by itself that there is a, a diverse mixture of disabled and non-disabled people uh, people from different backgrounds cultures experiences working together in an ecosystem that uh, harnesses kind of their diverse experience and knowledge um, and ability to bring out just kind of amazing, tech solutions, tech-based solutions, whatever they, those might be. And I guess the final one I'd want is for that experience, that kind of ecosystem uh, journey to start to influence other innovation centers around the country, around the world, really, and that we start collaborating across geographical space. 
awesome. I think those are all, you know, hopefully, well, they're awesome goals and hopefully um, things that we can start to see roll out over the next 10 years. Um, where do you see Disability Rights UK in that? What sort of role do you see them playing in that, that particular journey? So I think we, we will remain involved. Uh, we will hopefully also do things as an organization. Uh, so one of the things that, you know, I'm really interested in is, is how do we showcase disabled talent, disabled people who are running companies, who are producing goods and services so that we have almost become the showcase, the organization that showcases those individuals um, to as wide an audience as possible. Um, we will continue to work with both the Elise program, but individual disabled people to make sure that we change kind of the, the landscape of how innovation and entrepreneurs are funded and supported from government level so that disabled people have access to the finance and other support mechanisms that allow them to flourish in that space, whether it be through education, but actually when they're on that innovation track. Um, and, and then of course, just bringing this idea to thousands and thousands and thousands of disabled people. Uh, so I think we will play several roles really in, within the life of this. And I think that will be shaped, you know, I'm with DRUK now and we've got a team, but over the life of this program, that might change and different people will shape what we do, but it will always be shaped by disabled people. On that point, what would you say to Cameron, you know, 2.0, who currently now is starting their career and they're thinking about, you know, how to get involved in the space and what things to work on. What's a piece of advice you'd, you'd give to them from your, you know, 25 years experience? Oh, Cameron 2.0. I like the sound <laughs> of that. <laughs> um, what would I, what experience what would I give? Is, well, I think, I think things have moved on significantly from when I was, you know, going through my education it's not perfect, but there are a lot, lot more opportunities. I, I, I'd encourage those young, young disabled people who are going through that age group now, school, college, university, is, is to kind of don't put any boundaries on yourself. Um, if you have a, a desire um, of achieving something, um, it can happen. Don't give up. There will be knockbacks. We all experience those. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of keep that mind, keep that vision in your mind and keep going for it. There are brilliant, amazing organizations and people out there that you can reach out to who are willing to kind of support and help you along that way. Um, and there are, you know, great initiatives like the Elise um, ecosystem that we're creating that you can tap into for support um, to help you on that journey. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like people to, I'd like people to do, aspire to be whatever they want to be and not allow the knockbacks and the challenges that we face as disabled people to be the ones that stop you from doing it. Great. Thanks, Cameron. And then on a final question, um, so for, again, similarly those young disabled people out there who've got a bit of a spark of imagination, are creative, they want to do something. What are the two top challenges you'd like to see someone working on you know, in the next five years? I think the biggest one probably is around uh, is kind of getting around transportation, transport systems. Uh, I think if we can solve a way that disabled people can be truly independent 
can uh, travel on what's called public transport or other forms um, on an equal footing to enable them to get out and about. I think that's really, really important. So I'd, I'd, I want to see how tech can support that. There's lots of initiatives out there, whether it be, you know, something like uh, digital maps, um, but that, that really have real-time information targeted that disabled people need, that there's one way of accessing that rather than having to have, you know, multiple different apps that you use currently. So transport is really important, I think. That, that'd be my kind of one of my top things. And one more, if you have another that comes to mind. So I think um, so there's a lot of talk about smart tech and, uh, you know, smart homes, um, AI, those kind of things. And I, I want to see how those things will kind of improve disabled people's lives so that we as individuals are in control of our environments and so whether that be within your own home or whether whether when you're out and about so that tech that truly integrates into your home that we move away from this idea that you've got to buy into one particular company type solution um so at the moment you know so i i guess my example is a friend of mine who um is, is spinally injured you know is using things like um uh, voice activated lights those kind of things and that that person suddenly realizing that you know they don't need to rely on someone else to turn the lights on or off or open and close curtains um, those kind of things i'd like to see that develop to the kind of next stage so that it's all just part of your home it's not you, you haven't got to buy bits and pieces that are from different companies um, and so, so looking at how smart tech will offer people um, a control of their environment uh, would, be, would be a kind of a game changer, I think. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think particularly, like you mentioned, you know, with a lot of the stuff around what's happening at Plexel, a lot of things that actually seem low tech, just making environments more accessible. Um, and you can have tech helping to make some of those things that are currently manual but difficult much more available and, and uh, accessible to, to people of all abilities um, is a really nice like everyday but super impactful thing that we can start to think about. Awesome, Cameron. Um, well, we can draw to a close there, but is there anything in particular you wanted to add or final thing you wanted to mention before we, we wrap up? Yeah, I would just say to you know everyone who's listening is, is to find out more, get in touch with the Elise program, find out what it's all about and get in touch with Disability Rights UK. Uh, that's, you know, the more people that engage with this the more successful it's going to be awesome i think that's a great note to leave on i think you know really encouraging people just to take a chance just to go and ask questions and get involved and see what it's like you can always you know stop and go back <laughs> you don't have to you, you don't lose anything by trying. yeah absolutely um awesome camera well thanks so much for your time it's been super lovely to chat i'm sure we could have kept chatting for a lot longer but um hopefully that's been a really nice insightful um you know preview of what's happening in the LE's space and with Disability Rights UK and Plexal and all the partners out there um, and yeah as mentioned uh, you know everybody please take up the opportunity to find out more and the various uh, online resources um, around Disability Rights UK's work and the LE's uh, zone in particular. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Inclusive Innovators podcast. Next week we're joined by Marion Marincat, LE's member and founder of Mumbly. 
Do you want to take part in the Elise program or be part of our community? To find out more, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash enterprise forward slash Elise or give us a follow on Twitter at Elise2020. You can find out more about our virtual and physical workshops on social media, funding, app development and a masterclass on accessible comms. Captioning will be available for each session. We'd also like to thank our Elise partners, including Barclays Eagle Labs, Capital Enterprise, Disability Rights UK, Global Disability Innovation Hub, Hackney Council, Here East, Greater London Authority, Inclusion London, London Legacy Development Corporation, Loughborough University London, Plexel, London College of Fashion and UCL. This podcast is powered by Sociability.